0: Ploughing old patterns, raising new ground.
1: Hello, my name is Una Hamilton Heller of Leading Projects, and this is the podcast series Ploughing Old Patterns, Raising New Ground. Today I'm joined by Verity Burr, and that's because the next few episodes are a collaboration between the two of us. As artists and researchers, we've both engaged a lot with themes around land, myth, and ideas around belonging. And over the past few years, we've felt that there is, well, a bit of a crisis around English identity. But with this has also come a real willingness to question what Englishness is. What does it mean to be English, and what is this place really about? It's a topic that can elicit strong feelings, not all of them pleasant, but like it or not, it's a question that has been thrust into focus since our separation from the EU and with the continued possibility of the devolved nations seeking independence. So there seems to be a real need to ask, what is left when England stands alone? With its heavy and violent history of enclosure, empire and its entrenched class system, England has a lot to answer for.
2: But at the same time, England has always had a radical enchanted undercurrent with its mythic stories of King Arthur, the occult, strange pagan rituals and unique folk scene, all of which take inspiration from the English landscape. So how to belong in a landscape with such a tangled and contradictory history? As artists who have both English and British heritage and strong connections to England, we feel this tension between wanting to connect to an enchanted and mythical past and the dangers of idealisation and Romanticism. We don't want to erase or brush aside the violence of England's history, but what we do want to find is new ways to connect to our land inclusively and imaginatively. Can we hold space for both through art and music?
1: A notion that has kept coming up in our research that seems to exemplify a deeply felt notion of Englishness is the term of deep England. It's an idea that seems to encompass all of the things that we've been thinking about, but it's still hard to pinpoint. It is at once both conservative and radical, parochial and enchanted. It is definitely contradictory, but then who's allowed to speak for it? Is it expansive enough to be inclusive to people like us, as well as people not like us? Can we stay enchanted in deep England whilst at the same time be held accountable? Can ambiguity be part of the conversation?
2: And can we heal the wrongdoings of our ancestors and live with the result? In order to find out, we have spoken to others who have reflected on these themes and questions in order to ask, what is Deep England and where do we find it? So join us on our journey as we find out. This episode is called Spectres of Old England.
1: So we're currently standing in Bunhill Fields, which is not a field. (laughs) It's a graveyard uh, in East London, which is sort of sandwiched between a very hectic City of London district and the Old Street roundabout. So it's a place that offers a a bit of peace and quiet, quite tranquil. But it's still quite a sort of urban space. You've got plenty of people eating lunch, lots of pigeons, choppers, building <laughs> works. <laughs> yeah, it's very London still. So it might seem like quite an odd place to start our journey into into deep England. But we're here we're here to find we're here to find a Londoner. And he is Absolutely integral to the idea of deep England, mm.
2: and so Bunhill Hill Fields is is actually named for Bone Hill Fields, and it's actually um, it's been a burial ground for over a thousand years. and This person is amongst the bodies of about of over two hundred thousand people. So, in that sense, he's he's very much integrated into into the deepness of England, mm. um, but. Yeah, this person was considered um, a bit of an outsider his whole life. Um, he was a bit of an eccentric and didn't really have much success in his lifetime but has since gathered a bit of a cult following. Um, but his vision uh, has, has become intimately entwined with the English sense of self and English identity. Um, we're talking, of course, about the artist. William Blake
1: yeah and as as a lot of us are familiar with his lyrics or his poem Jerusalem became of course the lyrics to what we could essentially call the sort of unofficial national anthem to the English nation Jerusalem has become almost solidified into the kind of national consciousness in a way hasn't it Mm. and so we thought who better to ask but William to help us start our journey
2: yeah share some wisdom
3: and did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountains green and was the holy lamb of God on England's pleasant pastures seen and did the countenance divine shine forth upon our clouded hills and was Jerusalem builded here Among these dark satanic mills Jerusalem
1: is its a really good place to start, isn't it, when it comes to deep England, because um, it's just such a symbolic anthem. Mm. And, I mean, I've not grown up here, so my relationship to it is through popular culture, really, through, like, film and musical references. But it seems to be the one song that's always invoked when there's a sense of Englishness that uh, needs to be portrayed essentially Um,
2: I don't know, how about you? You grew up here, did you have to sing it in school? I didn't I didn't sing it at school but I associate it with quite a particular kind of Englishness Um, and originally when I heard it when I was a kid I think it invoked a kind of quite traditional, maybe conservative Englishness. Like, I remember the it was the anthem of the, the Women's Institute, the WI, and it for me it sort of presented quite a Christian view of England, yes. quite a kind of, yeah, conservative feeling. Um, but then actually growing up, listening to it again and as an adult and really thinking about it, um, you know, the, the sense of mysticism really comes through, um, and I feel like it really... Um, portrays that English love of myth and mysticism and romance, um, and I think that maybe comes from, you know, living in a landscape so populated by prehistoric monuments, and you know, you don't have to walk very far into across England to sort of find, come across like some standing stones, some megaliths, some fugu's, um, and these structures are seeped in the sort of unknowable and the mystic and, um, you know, the prehistoric and provide quite a kind of depth of history and mysticism and narrative. Um, but Jerusalem kind of implies that this sort of sense of Englishness goes way back when, um, you know, that lyric, those feet in ancient times, um, which was apparently inspired by Jesus and Joseph of Arimathea, and um, when Joseph supposedly visited Glastonbury um, in the West Country, which obviously is a real kind of famous location for the mystic and the magic, um, and the sort of weird <laughs>
1: as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah, and I guess that sort of brings in this connection to land as well, doesn't it? Mm. That I think is so present in, sort of the, English, in the English national consciousness. Um, in Jerusalem, of course, it's a very pleasant land, and you know you've got the mountains green, and you've got the clouded hills. So it's definitely a sort of rural landscape um, that's being evoked. But but then oh, and then you also have these references to commerce and industrialization, You know, there's the dark satanic mills, but there's definitely a sort of value placement mm. <laughs> placed on them, isn't it? Like these urban kind of landscapes are. Well they're satanic, so Mm,
2: not so romantic.
1: (laughs) Not so romantic. Definitely bad. Mm. (laughs) But um yeah, so I guess in Jerusalem there's a kind of soup, isn't there? This land, mysticism, and ancient times, and it's it's quite amazing in a way that this was all there when Blake wrote the lyrics, which is like early (laughs) eighteen hundreds. Nearby lie the remains of the poet painter William Blake and of his wife Catherine and Sophia. And
2: this is like next to a beautiful tree as well. Yeah, it's supposed to be pleasant, it? mm.
1: oh, so it's got to be close by then.
2: Um, what do you think? Can we just... Oh, maybe try over there. There's like some big plane trees. Mm-hmm. Oh look, squirrel! <laughs> <laughs>
1: So we've uh, we found the grave, and it's um it wasn't far from where we were actually, and it's um it's it's lovely. It's it's kind of on its own though. There are there are no other grave markers just where this is. Um, I'm sure there's plenty of bodies, mm. but um,
2: it's just William Blake's gravestone really here. Yeah, and it's next. It's next to sort of. It's marked by the big old. London plane tree mm. um, on this little green parcel of land um, and it's really nice because it's covered in flowers that people have obviously just kind of put on it um, today, so pretty fresh mm. So, and it's, it's next to a walkway so people are looking at it as they go past and stopping and taking pictures so it's quite nice to know that he's still recognised and They're
1: on the gravestone, it says poet, artist and prophet and there's a nice little verse here from uh, from Jerusalem actually. I give you the end of a golden string, only wind it into a ball. It will lead you in heaven's gate built in Jerusalem's wall.
3: A little vision. Bring me my bow of burning gold. Bring me my arrows of desire. Bring me my spear, oh clouds unfold. Bring me my chariot of fire. I will not cease from mental fight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand. Till we have built Jerusalem In England's green and pleasant land I will not cease from mental fight Nor shall my sword sleep in my hand Till we have built Jerusalem In England's green and pleasant land
4: I don't just feel weird to sort of proclaim Englishness as something to sort of, given recent history and like, I think like there is a lot of historic things to do with England, living in England, being English that are really fascinating, but I think more recent history, it's not necessarily something to really, mm. like Wayne Kramer from the MC5 had like a Stars and Stripes guitar, right? mm if you came out with a St George's cross on your guitar, I'd be like, hmm.
1: I'm talking to some friends of mine, James and Tommy, and James's dog Nosewise, who play in a pastoral proto-rock band called Parish. Their social media feed is modelled on a Parish newsletter, and their beautifully hand-drawn album artwork is a reference to rural living, bygone years, and the change of the seasons. To me, their image is quintessentially English, harking back both to an era long ago, as well as to the rock and prog scene of the 70s, when these tropes were very much in fashion. So who better to talk to about deep England? It turns out, however, that it's not that easy to find, or rather to own, a sense of Englishness.
5: It's the recent cultural history bit that just feels like it's got a lot of negative association. And like maybe we're trying to look back... Beyond that. Beyond that, going you know, go way, way further back before to a time when it wasn't as problematic maybe
4: not to the crusades not that far back yeah <laughs> further <Fair
5: enough. laughs>
4: um, it is really difficult it's 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 um a shame that we have to feel kind of sheepish about it yeah. in a way like it is our country too
5: kind of like it was That's supposed- something a nationalist would
4: say isn't it <laughs> <laughs>
5: I always feel like it's like I don't feel I don't feel proud to be English but I really like England yeah like that's it's spot on it's more that I'm thinking about <laughs> other things like the land the landscape the the more ancient history of the place and some of the cultural tradition that the older cultural traditions and you know the pubs and the beers and you know things that I, yeah it's like there's some kind of built in guilt around the whole thing and conflict yeah. isn't there I suppose definitely like,
4: sort of idea of like that kind of i guess village green kind of like quintessential english place is is quite interesting because i think that's i guess this is on my mind a bit because like being having a small child like watching things like postman pat with him or um thomas the tank engine it's all kind of there from like very early on in your life you kind of like sort of these things are presented, yeah. and it's kind of like, what if actually there's something not quite
5: right going on? I think for, for me, I feel like a lot of it is like the fact that we're we're living in London. It's like a longing for, mm. yeah, for that you know the the, the images of, of, of those sort of themes. It's like a sort of it is an enticing mm. idea,
4: yeah. Sort of this pre pre industrial paradise. I think the other thing for me, like, like parish in terms of it being, like, a community of people, and I think the one thing, so, like, the song Parish, um, by the band Parish, from the album Parish, um, I think had, um, that idea of there sort of being a seemingly, uh, together community, but something quite unseemly going on beneath the surface. I quite like that. Um, I think, that, I mean, that's straight from The Wicca Man, really, isn't mm. it? And also, like, Midsummer Murders. Do you know that show? About... You know that show. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, It's just, like, seemingly, like, bucolic paradise, but for some reason the crime rate's through the roof Yeah, people getting murdered left, right and centre.
6: Expect a different come I be found instead something strange is a food in the parish Something strange is a food in the parish.
4: The cover of the album has a man um sort of crouching down on the, um, on the earth um, slightly sort of tattered clothing he's sort of reaching into the ground and sort of pointing slightly with his index finger and then reaching up from the ground um, you can't see the rest of the body but you can see like a leathery um, decaying arm um, reaching upwards and yeah they're both pointing their fingers at each other kind of like Michelangelo's creation of Alden
5: it was uh, inspired by yeah bog people, which are like mummified bodies that are found, all, all, I mean everywhere all around Europe. But um, yeah, and some of the uh, associated folklore to explain, you know, why this this body might have been here, and some of the kind of myths about, you know, sacrifices for um, fertile yields and things like that um we don't really know what the realities were of of these things that we're singing about and writing songs about it's like it is a nostalgia and Mm. like a a nostalgia for something that we don't really know if even it was existed in the way that we're sort of telling it and stuff
4: i mean i think a lot of folk tales seem to be and I think a lot of parish lyrics seem to be kind of centred around the idea of someone seemingly maybe with, she maybe not with good intentions, maybe basically somehow getting themselves into a mess um, so maybe sort of like entering into a deal they can hold up their end of the bargain, you know. I think yeah human beings are quite fallible and um, Quite susceptible to making poor decisions, which mm-hmm. have horrendous outcomes. So maybe it's not in the land, but we are part of the land. We are mm. responsible for the land. We're caretakers of the land. um Maybe that's kind of how it all comes together.
5: Mm, totally. And like maybe like this this sort of idea that these kind of these stories and these themes, things to be inspired by, are that they are in the land. That they are. like belong. They belong to the land you know you know no one really knows where they're really from Mm -hmm. how old they are the truths behind them and versions of like folk tales are like you know maybe they were like reimagined or reinvented in like 1800s or stuff like that and a lot of our like what we think like paganism is and and stuff like that like reinvented much much more recently but even that i kind of like because it's like I don't know what's real and what's not and I quite like that it's sort of that there are these these tales and things that just belong to land or people or you know generations of people like just passing them down through word of mouth and it it has become convoluted it has become distorted from truth and yeah distorted from original you know versions of it and stuff
4: I think you're right I think the way people kind of use uh, uh, storytelling to kind of explain what's happening you know the sort of ideas that the seasons are sort of born from you know gods moving across the sky you know all this sort of stuff is like really cool like it's before people had like maybe the understanding that we now have of what's actually happening when one season moves into another Mm. they were kind of like had this really creative way of understanding Mm. it and explaining it Mm -hmm. and just by being someone who you know Crave's evidence based explanations of things. I do think we missed something by not having, by like, you know, we now we almost know too much.
2: Like Tommy and James mentioned, there seems to be a yearning for mystery for a time before we knew too much, when we had a deeper connection with the seasons, with our community, with nature. But we wondered is this just contemporary nostalgia from an urbanised age of high tech, or does it go further back?
7: Like our understanding of what folklore is, is a very modern uh, idea. It comes really in the 19th century, and as a reaction to the Brothers Grimm, who uh, were, were, were what is now thought of as, as German. They were German early folklorists who were collecting stories. And they, they were part of the national story of Germany. They were part of the, the, the stirrings of 19th century nationalism in Germany. And this idea that there were uh, legends, folk songs, stories, dances... Uh, myths and and things coming from the people, not from high culture. This idea spread throughout Europe and was um, seen of by people, largely white men, um, because those were the social and cultural act- actors of the time. They were seen as ways in which nationalism could happen.
2: We've met with Matt Cheeseman, a folklorist at the University of Derby, to get a historical perspective on where this yearning comes from especially in contemporary England. This folk revival, this impulse to save traditional songs, customs and dances, seems to happen again and again. But what void are we looking to fill?
7: Out of all the countries in Europe in the um, in the 19th century, England didn't really need nationalism. It didn't want any nationalism. Because England was kind of the silent partner in Britain, right? And so... It really has done England very well to keep quiet about Englishness. Really because it wants to project an idea that Britain is a union, a union between Scotland uh, and England, which it formerly is, of course, with with Wales and, uh, and, and especially uh, Ireland, which at that time in the 19th century was a colonised country completely. Um, and, so, and so the less said about England... The, the, the better. Um, when that's meant, there's a bit of a vacuum in the story of English folklore. You know, what happened in England in the 19th century for, for folklorists is they weren't that interested in collecting these, these um, myths and legends. So there is no big book of the, the English, you know, uh, uh, the English legends or anything like that as there is in, in, other, in other countries. But what they were interested in is theories. And in particular, I think an important theory is this idea, uh, it's an idea from E.B. Tyler, who was an Oxford um, anthropologist, stroke folklorist, I think he wrote in the 1850s, 60s, 70s. But he came up with this really persuasive idea called the Doctrine of Survivals. And it was a very simple idea, really, but it was was the concept that the past can um, be... um, can be seen or accessed in the present through people's actions and customs, even if they don't realise that um, they are carrying the past. Things basically survive. There are, he, he loved the word rude. There are rude survivals, i.e. savage, pagan survivals is what he meant. You know, the, Of course, there's a, there's a whole colonial kind of idea of a ladder of civilisation here. How can the English, who are um, uh, to all intents and purposes at the pinnacle of nineteenth-century um, uh, power and inverted commas civilization, be or, be at the same time also the repository of uh, pagan knowledge? Well, it's through this idea called the doctrine of survivals. Um, and so, for example, Morris dancing, Morris dancing was a rude survival. Those people did not know at all what they were doing they 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 just danced in that way it totally elided or forgot the actual history of morris dancing which you know everyone knows that idea of that it's a courtly dance and you know it's well attested historically but so uh, well it is now but at that time in the 19th century this idea of the doctrine of survivals had it that it must have just survived as this 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 fertility dance or or um, um, this dance that spoke to pagan gods, um, or whatever, um, and uh, um, uh, and you know the people um, uh, had no uh, awareness that it has this uh, this history, and so this taps into J.G. Fraser, um, his 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 book, um, the what's it called? The golden bow. Yeah, thank you, the Golden Bough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is all about that idea of things surviving. Um, uh With people not realizing you know why they they may survive um and as as we um, as we go into the twentieth century, you know you have writers like margaret murray and and um uh, Gerald Gardner actually saying. You know, turning the idea on its head and saying it's not unconscious survival; it's a conscious survival. It's actually a witch cult that, that has gone underground and is, has, was 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 so persecuted that it's um, that it's become a um, uh, that it's that it's buried its knowledge um, uh, uh, secretly, and those ideas have been thoroughly debunked. They were thoroughly debunked at the time. No one seriously believed there was a, a practicing witch cult. There's no evidence for that. Um, but anyway they're extremely evocative ideas and they're extremely evocative ideas in England specifically why are they so evocative this idea that in our practices in the ways that we move um, uh, in in in, the, in in the ways that you know in, in all sorts of things it goes from yew trees and in in, in churchyards it goes to morris dancing, it goes to all sorts of festivities and fairs and, and, and things from the ritual, the festive calendar. Um, everyone in England especially want to believe that this, there's this, this survival from pagan times. Um, why is that so? And I think, um, A, it's a nice story, it's a good story. Stories work, we like stories, we form ourselves by stories, A. B, though, it's because England has been so quiet about its power and it needed to be quiet about its power because it was running an empire, not only a kind of mini empire in Britain, but a global empire. We get
0: up in the morning, and we sound the harvest on, our master is orders for to mind. First thing we take in hand is the stopper from the can, so each man can drink until the bottom he find. Then each man do take his part and work with hand and heart, while the glorious sun do shine, do shine, while the glorious sun do shine. Our master brings the can, he's a jolly-hearted man, Come, me lads, and take a drop of the best. And don't you stand and prattle when you hear the wagons rattle. For the sunny is a drawin' to the west, to the west. For the sunny is a drawin' to the west. Here's the farmer's daughter, dear, it bruises plenty of strong beer. Which is enough to cheer up any soul. Each man shall drink and say, heaven bless this happy day, when we crown the harvest with a flowing bowl, flowing bowl, when we crown the harvest with a flowing bowl.
7: So what am I saying? I'm saying that deep England has resonances, huge resonances due to history, due to due to this hole in English identity. That hole in English identity um is there for reasons of I think power so that so that England could be a silent partner in an empire um, why now are we very concerned with these ideas, or why have these ideas why are these ideas of importance now? Um, there's a crisis in Englishness, and for the first time we're like, what well, you know, hold on. This is beginning in the, the 1990s with uh, the devolution of the parliaments and um, you know you can only see what's happened in Scotland over the last twenty years um, uh, in terms of uh, calls for uh, a dissolution of the union. then you have a kind of um, a, a culture which validates uh, abuse as well and I think abuse abuse has been the accepted expression of class oppression um, because of neoliberalism and how it's individualised us. And so more horizontal expressions of class disquiet kind of manifest in anger over over being abused somehow by power. Um, And so I think that dovetails into Brexit and I think that that kind of explains Brexit as a working class in some way protest that didn't have, that, that no longer could access the language of solidarity. And throughout this, there is this kind of literary, artistic, aesthetic, evocative, poetic song that speaks or that promises a connection with the land. Let's hope that it is not so infected by colonising forces and power that it, it in itself is not rooted in uh, colonisation. Um, I mean, I think an interesting way of thinking about that is looking at indigenous rhetorics from colonised countries and thinking about that idea of indigenuity within um, the UK as well. There is there is no such thing as an indigenous. Um, Uh, um, or or English um, person I mean it's it's well historically established as a nation that has been uh, built through um, uh, uh, waves of immigration Um, this idea of pagan survival the doctrine of survivals that was a great way of having an indigenous past if you imagined that you know this this dance let's just take morris dancing you know if you believe that it came, you know it came from a pagan place you know how do you square that with that idea of um england's made up of waves of um immigration well it's squared up by people just sort of copying it like a movement in flesh like a drop of you know a medicine in water um uh, something like that and so So the danger is that idea of the doctrine of survivals. Does it kind of create an ideal imagined indigenous um, force and then colonise it in the interests of a quiet England? Or can artists such as yourself liberate that indigenous force through aesthetic work?
8: Sweetly, or siren song songs o'er the sea, if it weren't for your arms, an orphan I'd be. Freedom and help. finally
1: we'd return to the mother's bosom. Like Matt warns, these notions of belonging to England are super contentious, especially words like indigeneity when used about white people, as terms that are haunted by white supremacy and ideas like blood and soil. But is it possible to feel connected to a place ancestrally without being exclusionary? We know historically England is an island of immigrants. Waves of people have arrived from all over the world for thousands of years. Can art and music connect us to this broader and more complex history of belonging?
9: for others, for my Englishness is is that sort of Englishness, um, the deep sort, the mythical sort, the standing stones, the earth, and that's kind of where I'm coming from with my idea of how I how I relate to England is is to this depth and this ancientness, and to the land particularly. To the ancient nature of the land. Um, and it's a mystical sort of connection that I feel.
2: We're talking to Angeline Morrison, a songwriter who has recently released an album called The Sorrow Songs Folk Songs of Black British Experience. Angeline's original compositions and restitchings of traditional songs focus on storytelling and the small things that often go unnoticed or ignored. Traversing themes of landscape, myth, race and loss, her work makes for a motive, yet healing listening. Angeline talks to us about her connection to the landscape, specifically Cornwall where she lives, with its ancient folk customs, the power of community and the need to restore black British folk history. It's a very unique landscape
9: in, within Britain. It's not really like anywhere else it has its own power and mystery but really i came because i fell in love with the obios it was everything it was it was the feeling of being there it was it was particularly the sounds the drum beats in particular that sense of collectivity that sense of something so very ancient that has been passed from hand to hand to hand to hand to hand to family to family to family that is so ancient that nobody alive knows its origins and that also there there's a a kind of um there's a real freedom about it because it's it's owned and 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 really ah oh, what's the word it belongs to the community there there, there aren't any, there isn't anybody in government making official rules about how this festival should go it belongs to the community it's their thing so there's a real freedom in that and and kind of You know, this is something outside of official rules. It feels like that. It's wonderful. I've been involved in and loved and sung and played folk music, particularly English folk music, for, you know, most of my life. But I've never heard a song that mentions a black person or a person of colour. Never, apart from a song called The Brown Girl which um, I first heard sung by Martin Carthy. And so this, this song was like a talisman for me, and I always sing it whenever I'm, whenever I'm performing a solo set. I usually start with this song. I am as brown as brown can be. My eyes are black as slow, it says. And the story is um, this brown girl is rejected by her lover who, who goes to town and then thinks he's some kind of big shot and then sends a letter back to her, presumably in a village or somewhere, you know, rural or remote, Um, saying that he didn't love her anymore because she was so brown. So he's really specific about it in the song. And generally that's interpreted as, you know, um, white girl with a suntan because she's poor and she's been working in the fields. And as we all know, um, beauty myths are continually changing and shifting in society. And for many hundreds of years, extremely pale, um, very, very white skin was favoured to the point where um, people would use... Uh, make up with lead in it and give themselves you know awful injuries and illnesses because of this secretly at first but I took I whenever I sang the brown girl I would sing her as my sort of brown right a person of color someone who's descended from enslaved African people or any other sort of person of color doesn't matter but in my song in my version of this song in my interpretation of the song and in my singing of it that's who. That's who she was to me. Still is, but it's just now. I, I, I guess I have a little bit more <laughs> confidence and will say it. I am as brown as brown can be.
8: I have eyes as black as snow. I am as brisk as the nightingale and as wild as the forest doe, my love he was so high and proud and his fortune too so high he for another fabric he made left me
9: album is called "The Sorrow Songs: Folk Songs of Black British Experience," and it's released on Topic Records. And the purpose of it really was to restore. I like to use the word restoring because it contains the word restore, and it's about retelling stories and reclaiming narratives which have been either forgotten, or hidden, or airbrushed out of official history, or were never part of official history. Um, specifically the narratives, um. Of Britain's historic um, black presence, which we know dates back at least two thousand years, and thankfully more people are becoming aware of that now. Because there's there's been you know popular misconceptions that uh, that there there weren't a quote unquote weren't any black people in Britain before about 1948, um, an empire windrush, but that's that's not that's not a true picture at all. So yeah, I wanted, to, I wanted to address that and I particularly wanted to use the medium of folk music because folk and traditional music, that's where you should be able to go to find the unofficial narratives and all the hidden histories and all the forgotten histories. The idea to, to, to write this album came from my, my research at um, the Vaughan Williams Memorial Library at Cecil Sharp House. I was only there for a week, but I was very lucky I got to be artist in residence for a week. And um, my goal was to look through the archives and see if I could find evidence of folk songs mentioning or traditional songs mentioning black characters or ideally written from the perspective of a black character. That's what I wanted in particular. And, you know, it was only a week of intensive research. My research is ongoing. It's going to be ongoing all the time. And. I found lots of other mentions, but I particularly wanted mentions that were either neutral or positive, right? So I found lots of mentions that were not those things, and I didn't want to sing those songs, so I left those. It was really difficult, actually, when it came to the search words, because um, the material in the Vaughan Williams Memorial Library is unexpurgated, unexpurgated, so I found myself having to use some of the... Um, some some very pejorative descriptive terms for black people. I I didn't want to use them, but I wanted to find you know if if I was going to locate this stuff, um there wasn't another choice at the time, um but I didn't find what I was looking for at all, and I thought well I c- I can go on researching or I can just switch my focus for a while, um and story some of the. The historic black ancestors that we have evidence for into song, and to make them sound almost as though they were lost, lost or forgotten traditional songs. So the biggest compliment anybody can give me about the album is that, is that that th- that these sound like traditional songs. They don't all sound like that, but they are definitely in that folk style. Um, and it was uh, a way of, it was my way of um of restoring those songs I see it as a as a gift to the folk community because um my biggest, biggest wish for the album is that people will want to sing these songs in, in folk clubs or wherever they wherever they do their singing. I composed them with refrains and choruses that I wanted to be singable and memorable. So I hope they are that and I hope people will sing them. So it's a gift to the folk community and it's also um I wanted it to be an act of honouring to these black ancestors who have been rendered out of official history. Black ancestors that I'm writing about, we have our shared belonging in the land. Whoever we are, we have our sh- if we're human, we have our shared belonging in the land. Um, the the forced abduction and trafficking of of Africans during the transatlantic slave trade meant there was a huge amount of enforced travel. So the sea features very heavily in terms of the song "Unknown African Boy." Brackets died 1830. Um, and I feel like that's important. I want to honour the child. We don't know his name, but he was washed ashore on St Martin's, Isles of Scilly, um, when when a ship, which is uh, likely to have been carrying um, cargo destined for sale, so we don't know whether the boy was already owned by people on the ship, or whether he was destined for sale himself, um, but he was property. The song begins with the mother lamenting because she has just she she's she's desperately racing around looking for her missing child and the first line is oh my brown arms they are sad and empty oh where oh where is my little son and then when she realizes what's happened because she keeps running into other mothers in the village to whom the exact same thing has happened and they piece it together and realize and they are they are grieving collectively She's just trying to make the best sense of this that she can, and to make it, to make the unbearable, a a tiny, tiny little bit less unbearable. So she's imagining. She's imagining first of all that her, she's sending her spirit out into into the earth, into all the elements, into the water, into the air, into the clouds. She's sending her spirit out to look for her child, and the final. The final two lines are The earth is your mother now, my dear baby She will hold you safe in her soft brown arms So the, the, the mother's arms Whether it's the earthly human mother Or, or, or the, the brown arms of, of the earth Holding holding the child's body after his, after his drowning Those arms are at the beginning and the end of the song So that it should feel like a, like a hug from my loving mother Lully, my dear babe, where are you? The main thing that I wanted to, to, to speak to here is in terms of why I wanted to use song, because many um, many researchers and writers have written about the historic black presence in Britain. I wanted to story this into restory this into song and particularly into folk music which I wanted to create with a sonic template that was reminiscent of British folk music to to just to just show that we belong here, our bodies belong here, and our stories belong here, and our songs belong here. Um, and there has always been a tradition amongst the communities of enslaved Africans and their descendants all over the world in America and the Caribbean, all over the world. Um, a tradition of song, a, a really a really powerful, incredibly important tradition of song, which has been... Um, it has been healing, it has been resistance, it has been um, an incredibly powerful place to have identity when every single day of your life your identity is stripped from you and your very existence is so endangered each day that that you long for death as a release from this existence. And And the spirituals are full of this and also some of the secular African... American folk songs. Um, The reason that the album is titled The Sorrow Songs, that that title is is a homage to W.E.B. Du Bois, who I'm sure you've heard of, um, a very iconic African-American author of the 20th century. And he wrote um, The Souls of Black Folk um, in 1903. And chapter 14 is called Of The Sorrow Songs. And it's all about the tradition of singing and music in black communities and how... Music and song can be used to give voice to stories and to emotions and to experiences that are just too horrific to communicate in any other possible way. You couldn't expect to communicate, you, you couldn't find the language, whatever languages you had access to, you couldn't find the words to communicate this, this, these experiences adequately and what you go through every single day. Um, but you can do that in a song because, because of the, the really powerful and pure way that emotion can be carried, um, in melody and in the human voice.
8: I see.
2: In this episode, we've heard from proto-rock band Parish, folklorist Matt Cheeseman, and singer-songwriter Angeline Morrison. I really appreciated how all these discussions remained indeterminate. Everyone acknowledged the difficulty in representations and identifications of Englishness, and there's obviously no easy answer when it comes to deep England. Yet musicians like Parish and Angeline are restoring and restoring these local-specific stories and folk tales for their communities. In the next episode, we'll be digging deeper into England and talking about artistic methods to earth up new connections to this troubled land.
8: But my stomach knots up with familiar dread. As the voices rise up and ring loud in my head, they cry, Go. Home, home.
7: This episode is part of Legion Project's audio and podcast series Ploughing Old Patterns, Raising New Ground and co-commissioned by Block Projects. The episode was made by Verity Burt and Una Hamilton-Heller. The music is courtesy of Parish, Crypt of the Wizard, Topic Records and Angeline Morrison. Editor and sound designer is Una Hamilton-Heller. To listen to a Deep England-inspired playlist, Please search Beneath Clouded Hills on Spotify. The series theme tune is composed by Stephen Crow. Graphic design is by Blue Firth. This episode has been supported by Arts Council England and the European Research Council. For further credits, please see the show notes.